Hello and welcome to the General Well Servicing CAOEC podcast for July 2021. It's crazy to think one year ago, uh, CAOEC members were still called CAODC members and were in the worst downturn in association history. But each month this year, as we compile the data, we are seeing dramatic increases in activity levels. And for example, uh, the week of July 20th, 2020, we averaged 42 active rigs compared to around 155 last week. So while we're not quite back to the numbers we saw in early 2020, which uh, January, February, we averaged around 250 rigs or so, active rigs, um, given the timing of the pandemic, which came after five solid years of reduced activity, uh, and the extent, of course, that pandemic hurt demand for oil and gas, uh, the labor situation for our members is starting to get tight again. Yes, the rig count is still low, but the additional year of depressed activity during the pandemic continued what was a long and steady decline in people working in the field and also increased layoffs on the corporate side of the business. So it brings our industry to an interesting spot with activity returning and the price of both oil and gas increasing, many companies in the sector as a whole, and in the service sector in particular, are looking for people. And in fact, I think I've seen more member help wanted posts over the past four weeks than I have in probably the past four or five years. So this is great news, but it also leads into what the topic of our next few podcasts will be uh, looking at, and that is, what is the labor situation in our industry going to look like if, uh, hopefully, and when this recovery continues? In addition to facing the challenges employers in all industries are facing coming out of the pandemic, such as transitioning back to an office environment, uh, people looking for career changes, better work-life balance, people still benefiting from some of the uh, federal programs that are out there, uh, there are many questions that face employers in our industry specifically when it comes to staffing and attracting new talent. Do young people want to work in the oil and gas industry is a big one. Uh, do they see it as having long-term career potential? What are some of the knowledge gaps in their organizations? How are they going to fill more senior roles when they appear? So you could argue that uh, drilling and well servicing is lost a good six years of knowledge building opportunities given our business has been so poor. And while there are still people who have managed to learn and work throughout the downturn, it stands to reason we have a much smaller pool of people available in that five to 10 year experience range. And those are the people who would normally be looking to take on more meaningful roles in both the field and in the office. And as far as attracting new talent is concerned, you know, where do we sit as an industry with respect to all of the challenges we've seen? Uh, we've heard, we've all heard the stories of kids being told that oil and gas is a bad or a sunset industry. Uh, they're exposed to movies such as Bigfoot, which makes villains of people who work on and around the rig site. Um, they're a big part of a celebrity culture that is condemning the work that we're doing. Um, Kids are reading reports that are predicting the end of demand for our products. 
They're also associating their use with extreme weather events and uh, the destruction of the Earth's climate. So <laughs> with all of that happening, how are we going to convince young people to even consider working in our industry? And to top it off, the federal government has just released an announcement on what they are calling a just transition to a low-carbon future for workers and their communities. Uh, language like this is at best ambiguous and leaves questions about what a just transition means. Are they suggesting this transition is the beginning of the end of oil and gas? And if they're not suggesting that, then why not choose language that is clearer or at least provide a definition of what the term just transition means within this context? Otherwise, I don't think it's unfair to suggest that statements like these give the impression that perhaps they feel carbon-intensive industries don't have a future in Canada, which is odd because given all our industry is doing to reduce carbon intensity, you would think that uh, it would be a, a great sell in terms of marketing what we know is, is best-in-class products into a market that has a huge demand for them, uh, for the benefit of all Canadians. So a lot of challenges right now. And so for the next few episodes, we will be speaking with a variety of different people in a variety of different roles about the topic of labor and perhaps what we might be looking at as our rig counts improve and as we have more jobs available for Canadians. Our first guest is John Paul, sales manager of drilling at Enzyme Energy Services, one of the largest integrated service companies in Canada. Mr. Paul joins us to discuss how he got his start in the industry and how he views the skilled labor situation and what he thinks it'll take to attract people to the good jobs CAO EC members have to offer. Before we get to that, however, we will start, as always, with the industry update. Our industry update is brought to you by RiggerTalk. RiggerTalk is your global energy services network. Join the growing RiggerTalk community of over 380,000 energy professionals worldwide. Get pinned on the map today at RiggerTalk.com. On the drilling side, in June we saw 3,183 operating days compared with 437 in June of last year for an increase of 2,746 or 628%. Month over month we had 1,766 operating days in May, so we're up 80% compared to last month's numbers. Active rigs for the month averaged 130, up from 18 in June of 2020, for an increase of 622% year-over-year and an increase of 22,400 jobs. Our registered drilling fleet is down 1 to 489 and our year-over-year -year rig count is down 16 or 3%. Provincially, in June, Alberta averaged 63% of active rigs, Saskatchewan 23%, BC 12%, and Manitoba 2%. In 2020, Alberta had 65% of active rigs, BC 35%. As mentioned, there were only 18 rigs working in Canada in June of 2020, and none of them were east of Alberta, apparently, so much better days this year. On average, over the month, 78 rigs, or 60%, were drilling for oil, and 47 rigs, or 36%, were drilling for natural gas. Five rigs, or 4%, were drilling for geothermal, potash, or helium. On the service side, in June we had a total of 77,421 operating hours, up from 34,927 in June of 2020, 
for an increase of 42,494 hours, or 122%. Month over month, we had some late reporting, and our op hours total is up to 70,246 for May, which gives us an increase of 7,175 hours, or 10%. The month over month working service rate count is down 10 from 441 in May to 431 in June. Year over year, we are up from 264 working rigs in June of 2020, or a total increase of 167 working rigs this year. The hours per working rig average is 146 for June, up from 125 in May, and up 78 year over year. For those who don't know, we define a working rig as a rig that has hours in the reporting month. This is different than an active service rig, which is a rig that has had operating hours in the previous calendar year. Provincially, this June, Alberta saw 64% of service rig activity, Saskatchewan 27%, BC 2%, Manitoba 3%, and Ontario 3%. Last year, the provincial breakdown had Alberta at 73%, Saskatchewan at 23%, BC at 1%, and Manitoba at 2%. The EIA's July 7 short-term energy outlook is a little different than previous months this month, perhaps due to it being the end of the first half of the year. EIA is calling for the increased global oil production to slow down for the remainder of the year and expects supply to outpace demand heading into 2022. This means lower oil pricing overall next year and is contrary to several other analysts, such as Eric Nuttall, who see the lack of meaningful production over the past five years leading to a real supply shortage, a catalyst for which will be OPEC bringing barrels on this year. EIA has a summary for Canadian production, so I'll read it to you here. We expect Canada's production of petroleum and other liquid fuels to increase by more than 300,000 barrels per day in 2021, which would make it the leading source of non-OPEC liquid fuel supply growth this year. Despite heavier-than-normal turnarounds at a number of oil sands projects in the first half of 21, we forecast Canada's production to reach new record highs in the second half of 2021. Output growth in 21 is driven by increasing refinery demand for crude oil in the United States, the end of Canadian government-ordered curtailments, and the restart of oil sands expansion projects that were deferred during 2020. We do not expect any new upstream projects to come online in Canada during the forecast period. Forecast crude oil production growth comes from expansions or de-bottlenecking of existing projects. In January 2021, President Biden revoked the presidential permit authorizing the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline, and in June 2021, uh, owner TC Energy officially cancelled the project. The pipeline would have expanded Canada's crude oil export capacity to the United States by 830,000 barrels per day. The cancellation of the Keystone XL does not materially affect our production outlook for Canada, and we expect Canada's pipeline export capacity will be adequate through the end of the forecast period. Enbridge's Line 3 replacement at 370,000 barrels per day will come online at the end of 2021. The Trans Mountain Expansion Project at 590,000 barrels per day in 2022 and additional Enbridge expansion and optimizations to its existing pipeline system can bring more than 400,000 barrels per day of increased export capacity over the forecast period. Forecast production in Canada grows by 200,000 barrels per day in 2022. EIA also sees WTI pricing estimates up month over month, 
with a forecasted average price for 2021 of $65.85 US. This is up another $4 month over month and $6.94 since May. EIA expects rising production will end the persistent global oil inventory draws that have occurred for much of the past year and lead to relatively balanced global oil markets in the second half of 2021. As of today, July 22nd, we are at, and let me just bring it up here, 154 active rigs. And quickly, on the natural gas side of the equation, EIA expects Henry Hub prices will rise to an annual average of $3.22 in 2021 and fall to an average of $3 in 2022. So all in all, a pretty positive outlook for now. And that is it for the industry update. Our industry update is brought to you by RiggerTalk. RiggerTalk is your global energy services network. Join the growing RiggerTalk community of over 380,000 energy professionals worldwide. Get pinned on the map today at RiggerTalk.com. Okay, please stick around for the first of our labor-focused careers in oil and gas interviews. We'll be right back. General Well Servicing is a premier and proud family-run service rig contractor, serving our customer base in southeast Saskatchewan and southwest Manitoba since 1996. For over 25 years, we have been building one of the most efficient, hardworking, driven, and safest reputations in the area through hiring and training our best asset, our people. To learn more about General Well Servicing, Check us out online at general.fasttruckingservice.com. Okay, joining us is John Paul, sales manager of drilling at Enzyme Energy Services, one of the largest multinational integrated drilling and oil field services companies in Canada. Thanks for joining us, John. Thanks for having me. So we're at a spot as an industry where we're starting to get really busy. Um, we need to fill roles across a wide variety of professions, uh, f first and foremost on the drilling rig. But as these companies ramp up, the oil field employs everyone from lawyers to heavy-duty mechanics to IT professionals, etc. Um, and all of this is happening at a time when you could probably argue that oil and gas isn't the most popular place to be looking for a career you know, for a variety of reasons. I guess, number one, um, younger people might think it's a sunset industry. There's a lot of uh, opposition to oil and gas in the news. But also, people who want to work in oil and gas and have been trying for the last six years haven't really had a ton of, uh, of opportunity given the downturn, um, then the pandemic. I mean, you know, a lot of people have been trying for six years and have just decided to move on because they can't hold a steady job. So, you know, what we're trying to do over the next few episodes on the podcast is uh, the general well servicing podcast is to uh, sort of talk about careers in oil and gas, how they start, how they can progress and why people should consider them. So you, I think, have a fascinating career. Uh, I'd like to start with the ending first. What is your current role right now at Enzyme? 
Well, first of all, I hope it's not the ending. I'm, I'm only 48, so hopefully it's just late in the second. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> right? Your, your but, current, current. Yeah, maybe that's a better. But today, right. today, yeah. uh, today, I'm the sales manager for uh, our drilling division in Canada. Uh, last year, I was also the general manager of uh, well servicing. Because, like most people in 2020, or a lot of people in 2020, you either didn't have a job or you had two jobs. And uh, you know, I mean, further to your your comments. We were worried eight years ago about the great crew change and the great crew change was going to be when all the knowledge based and the people in their 50s and 60s were, were going to retire and how are we going to replace that knowledge. Well the great crew change never went away but now it's been exacerbated by another 1980s. The people in their 60s are, are retired, the people in their 50s, well who we were in their 50s seven years ago when the downturn hit of for in some in some cases been been forced out or or you know early retirement people in their 40s are rare because of the 1980s and there's there's kind of a bell curve of of knowledge and experience both in the field and in the office at uh, you know in the mid to late 30s but the, the the additional problem is that there isn't people as you as you said in the preamble is that Teens and 20-year-olds aren't going into the business anymore. So at the start of the downturn, as an example, I was unemployed and I was wondering what I should do. So I wanted to stay relevant. So I, I went back at, oh, I think I was, I was 44. I went back to SAIT to do petroleum engineering there. Yes, I was the second oldest guy in the class after Timur from Kazakhstan. Yeah. But there, there <laughs> used to be a waiting list to get into that program of, of a thousand people. Well. They could only fill three or four sections, and and the bulk of the kids. I'm going to say kids, but I mean they were in their 20s. There were some people in their 30s and a couple in their 40s as well, but they were just going into the program because it was easier to transfer into other uh, engineering disciplines from that because there was there was no waiting list. So I'm going to suggest that it's not just a problem in the field, which it is. It's it's a problem in the office. There's no geologists coming in. There's no engineers coming in. I'm sure landmen is different. And I mean, if you walk down the street, there's no one coming into Timmy's right now either. So we can delve into that deeper, but sorry if I went on a rant there, but it, it's a concern for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I guess with your current role, what are some of the things that you're, you're doing? So say this is career day at, uh, at uh, your son's school. Um, you know, what would you tell somebody, uh, you know, who, who doesn't, who's not familiar with the industry? What's your day-to-day look like, I guess? Well, it, it, it's interesting you say that. I used to do a lot of kids' presentations in, in the Arctic or <clears throat> during the last uh, last time it was busy, you know, seven or so at high schools trying to get kids into the in, in, interested in the industry. And basically, at its, at its base roots, if you want to put a hole in the ground, I'll provide you with a shovel and someone to, to dig it for you. Uh, we we uh, try and coordinate equipment with customers who are, who are looking to drill, uh, drill holes in the ground and turn them into wells. So... So take us back now to the beginning of it all. Uh, when did you get your start? Like, um, you know, where were you? What were you doing? And, and how did you end up in the in the oil field? There's there's a, there's a couple of responses for that. Come some of them are time tongue in cheek, and we can delve into the other motivators, I guess. But in 1995, I had a. You said before you were a writer. I had just. Uh, I was graduating with uh, an English degree in 19th and 20th century American literature and Renaissance poetry. And that's how I ended up on the rigs. 
So okay. that's kind of yeah. You know, it's a fine employment opportunity, but uh, yeah. It now now I say that I say that somewhat in jest, but I mean, in a few there's, there was other factors. I mean, number one, I was looking for money, and and in relative terms, the rigs up until recent years used to be the premium blue collar job, if you want to call it that, in in Canada. Um, so I was looking for money. I was looking for a little bit of adventure, and uh, that that fit the bill. But also, like many people in Alberta, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say that, that the the oil field is kind of like the McDonald's of Alberta. Every, everyone's either been touched by it, or kind of worked by it, or, or 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 had people working in it. But someone in my family has been either working on, sitting on, or paying for a drilling rig steady since 1946. So my grandfather started after the war in Turner Valley. All my uncles, my father, uh, most of my cousins, even my mother was a receptionist at Thompson Drilling in 1973 when I was born. And then it was my after-school daycare in the, in the 80s, uh, early 80s. You know, I remember the HR lady, Ann Rolls, wonderful woman, but she said, uh, you kids are being too noisy, just go out in the yard play out there but watch out for the loader so it was different different times but it's it's uh it was voluntary but it's also in my blood and i think uh you know many people and i i would bet dollars to donuts that anyone who's who's taking the time to listen has probably got it in their blood too yeah well that's really interesting so you essentially did you go into university right out of high school then yeah i did and and if i had followed my father's advice I had taken petroleum engineering but that sounds hard when you're 17 so that's how I ended up in English and by the time I realized I'd probably made a horrible mistake it was the fourth year and <laughs> you were graduating so well you know that's yeah. such a it's so interesting because you know I did the same thing right out of high school um, went into university and did a phys ed degree and I don't you know it was a fantastic degree I learned a lot I still use a lot of what I learned today but what I didn't realize was that there was no marketable component to that, you know, unless you were tuned in or took a specific sort of, uh, I guess, uh, major within the program. And I took sports psychology. Um, you know, you, I, at least at that age, I was 17 too in my first year, I didn't grasp the uh, concept of having marketable skills, right? Mm -hmm. and, and it took me a long time to sort of... Uh, learn that um, and so I think that what's so interesting about um, the drilling rigs another a friend of mine in high school his dad said look yeah you can go to university but before that you got to get uh, I want you to be uh, an apprentice to be an electrician and so that's what he did and then he went to university the year after that but in the summers he was making I don't know, probably four times as much as I was cutting grass because he was uh, an electrician. He had those marketable skills, right? And mm -hmm. he could still go to university, but he also had the ability to command a higher wage with those skills during the summer months, et cetera. So such an important lesson, I think, for people is that, uh, you know, if you're going to go into something, um, you want to make sure that those skills that you acquire can actually uh, make you some money at the end of the day. And... You know, oil and gas is just a, a fantastic place to do that. And so what was your first, you know, I guess, experience like being on the rig? Like, which company did you start with and, and uh, where did you go? I started with uh, Akita because that Ann Rolls I mentioned was the personnel manager there. And at the time, it was actually difficult to get a job on a rig. This was 1995 and it was slow, kind of like it is now coming out of a downturn. But 
and, and maybe we'll talk about this later, but the pay scale in relative terms was still quite high. As I recall, minimum wage was four or five dollars and and uh, I think we were getting a rough neck started at 15 or something like that. So it was three times minimum wage, whereas, whereas now, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll roundabout get to your <laughs> answer the question in a second, but in, you know, in relative terms now, it's minimum wage is $15. I've heard anecdotally that framers are making about 30 and you know, I mean, you start at about 30 on the rigs too, but you're not home every night too. So it's uh, the, the CAODC before they were the CAOEC did a did a study that I found fascinating was that uh, if you factor in rollbacks, wage rollbacks, and the consumer price index, rig hands haven't had a wage in 20 years since 2001. So it's I'm sure we'll touch on this later, but it's not attracting people the way it used to be. And, and as, I, as, I, as I alluded earlier, I was, mm, call it unfocused, but, but I knew that I could make some quick money if I went out and, and, and started on the rigs and, and thought that, uh, yeah, it would, be, it would be good for me anyways. Yeah. Now, having said that, what, what was it like? Well, to be honest with you, I hated it. <laughs> okay. And I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have, uh, I wouldn't have admitted that <clears throat> 20 years ago, but I mean, it's, I've been thinking about this over the last couple of days. I mean, with you know, 26 years of hindsight, it was confusing. It was I was out of my element. I, I got in my '83 Chevy Malibu station wagon. It was an old Government of Canada, Environment Canada green. You know, got up, went up to Elms Yard in uh, Valley View uh, for a Kita 45, and you know, there was a bunch of guys running around. We were we were tearing it out of the yard and moving to work for Amarata Hess, as I believe, or as I recall up uh, just north of Valley View and uh, you know it was it was uh, I, I wasn't sure how long I was going to be there my father as I mentioned he worked on the rigs and back when he was doing it in the 50s and 60s is you were with the rig for the well so he said I'll see you in a couple months I was like huh what you know? <laughs> as it turns out it ended up being a regular hitch two weeks on and one week off okay but, you know but then you, you don't know what to expect yeah I wasn't uh, although I had worked on our our family ranch in the summers. I, I certainly wasn't a farm kid, so I wasn't particularly mecha mechanically inclined. You know, good attitude and positive and stuff like that. But it was uh, it was confusing the first couple weeks, and then it was better the second hitch. And then by the third hitch, I was no longer the dummy roughneck. I moved to stud, whether not necessarily because of my ability, but because someone moved to another crew or something like that. And all of a sudden, it just clicked. And then I loved it. So I mean, it's it, it, like any new job. It's uh, you, know, you know, I'll keep using McDonald's as a reference. If you go, if you start as a kid, it's your first job. It wasn't my first job, but if if you're say you started at McDonald's, you go in, it's going to be you know fryers sizzling and beeps going off and burgers ready and people maybe hollering at you. But you get to go home and reset. You know, you're you're committed to it for two weeks. So it right. was. Uh, it was it was memorable, but uh, like I say, I, I fell in love with it, and and now I still love the smell of diesel in the morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, always a challenge. I've heard that you know right now, as as uh, guys are ramping up, you know, you get those people who give it a try and and they don't last. Uh, sounds like you'd recommend at least hanging on for a couple of weeks until you can get your feet oh, you, under you. You got to. I mean, you got to with anything. I mean, and. <clears throat> That's kind of even if I wasn't happy, and you know, my, my I remember my father told me you can do anything for a year. 
I might, I might, I might challenge you anything, but <laughs> you can probably, you can probably do anything for a year if you have to, especially if the pay's there. So, I mean, and it's, we just had last weekend we had a guy come out, and it's and it's frustrating because these days, you know, it takes about three days to to move someone through the system. So first of all, you got to find them, and then you got to orientate them, and then they have to take a drug test, and then they got to get out to site. And if they don't show up, or if they get out there and they don't like it, well, you're three days behind, assuming you got someone in the queue to move up behind. So, I mean, being shorthanded is a problem. But we had a, we had a, I don't know if he was a kid or a grown man or a young adult or whatever you want to call it, but he got up to the rig, he did one shift, and he said, it's too hard, I quit. Well, give it time, you know. I mean, it's, uh, and it's, it's no different if, if you're being an engineer or a geologist or whatever. Your first day on the job is going to be, there's a lot of unknowns, right? So and it just takes time. So yeah, yeah, that's for sure. So you lasted three weeks. It, you, you settled in, and then how long were you out there mm. after that? Well, yeah, in some, <laughs> it's in some regards, 26 years. I mean, sure. Still, it's it's uh, <clears throat> as of late. Well, no, I guess last year I did spend quite a time in the field with with our stations at the general manager uh, role, but. Uh, I worked in the field for six years, uh, all over Western Canada, uh, Alberta, Northern Alberta, Central Alberta, Northeastern BC, uh, the territories, and then in Australia. So I, I ended up leaving Akita, and uh, I went and did an MBA in Australia. But there was an opportunity down there. There was a one day there was a little sign that said "Rig Hands Wanted," and I thought, "Oh, that's cool." And then another sign there was a or another next day or next week in the paper there was an even bigger one and pretty soon it was a half page ad and they were looking for rig hands and at the time this was 2000 Australia only drilled 250 wells a year or something like that this is before coal bed methane or mm -hmm. CSJ as they call it mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. and uh, but they were shorthanded and they actually they didn't pay very well either but uh, it was an opportunity I put my school on hold and I went down and I, and I did that for for uh, few months and then uh, came back to Canada I wasn't necessarily planning on staying in the in the drilling business or the oil field but I, I applied all over the world you know New York Johannesburg uh, Toronto California Texas and I ended up back at Akita so they were looking for a, they were looking for a salesman and in 2000 MBAs were hot now everybody and their dogs got one, and you know, I mean, it's it's a it's a good skill. But at the time, they were hot, and they were, well, we got to have a we got to have an MBA in this office. So I came in, and uh, and uh, that's how I got into the into the sales role, I guess. Okay. So that you know, you've got all of these uh, marketable skills from from working on a rig. You go out, you decide you want to broaden your, I guess, career direction, uh, not necessarily thinking about the oil patch you get some higher education and then all of a sudden you can parlay that back into an industry where you you know you understand it from a technical perspective now you've got those other skills and it just makes you more marketable in terms of uh, your new direction and that's something that I think is is extremely valuable knowledge for anybody who's looking for a job right now is that you know you can take we talk a little bit about uh, the cost of, of gaining education and then, you know, how you're able to market that education after the fact. And I mean, you know, if you can pay for 
your education along the way or, or save up some money with those technical skills and then start broadening and, and moving off in different directions. Extremely valuable, extremely it, valuable. It doesn't have to be in any particular order. You know, I mean, you, 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 can, get, you can get a, uh, a formal education or you can get uh, uh, life skills or, or work experience or any of those and, or any combination thereof. And it's, you know, I mean, uh, uh, no matter what my kid ends up doing, he's only 15 now. I could use him if he was 18, but he's only 15 now. But he's gonna, I'm, I'm gonna encourage him to go do something, uh, whether you know, he, maybe before going to university, or if he doesn't want to go to university, he's certainly not gonna sit around. But I know of a lot of uh, great people, a lot of great companies in Alberta here that that would be uh, happy to put him to work and get get him some experience. So, mm -hmm. I mean, if if uh, Geez, I hope there's some young people listening to this, but <laughs> if, if nothing else, maybe a soundbite. But uh, there's a lot of great opportunity in Alberta, and it's uh, and in Western Canada. Sorry, I shouldn't say just Alberta. The Western Canadian Sedimentary Basin encompasses four provinces and two territories. So you know, I think there's been almost 400,000 wells drilled in Western Canada since the. 1918 or 1922 or something like that, or maybe I'm getting the dates when Norman Wells fired up mixed up. But I mean, it's uh, there's a, a, a wise man once said I heard they were referring to Texas, but there's a lot of room for nine-inch hole in Western Canada. So there's sure. uh, there's lots 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 more to be done. Well, again, you know, going back to the opportunity for young people, I think about how long I carried student debt for, and you know, it just seems like. Even if, so if you want to be a lawyer, for instance, and you're studying law, why not work on a drilling rig in the summers? Because you're making, you're getting a, you know, you're getting a good wage, number one. Uh, you're learning some technical skills, number two. And it's not just, uh, as we know, it's not just hard labor anymore. I mean, you look at some of these drilling rigs that they've got and they're, they're just walking computers, essentially. Uh, so you're learning those skills. Uh, you're filling up your bank account. You go back, you finish your degree. And guess what? The oil and gas industry needs lawyers, you know. Mm -hmm. The oil and gas industry needs writers. The oil and gas industry needs people to make video, uh, audio. That's what we're doing right now. I mean, my uh, I went back to get some marketable skills in in uh, communications, and that was uh, journalism. It was uh, photography. It was uh, video, video editing, um, writing, technical writing, and I I still apply all of those skills that I got in the oil and gas industry. And I'd, I haven't even worked in the field, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, as, as we try to encourage younger people to get involved, I think that maybe there's a stereotype or a stigma that if you're working on a rig, all you're doing is pulling a uh, pipe or, you know, uh, standing outside in freezing cold weather and, uh, you know, washing the side of a rig or whatever it is. But there's just so many different opportunities in this industry. And, and you can work anywhere in the world. I mean, you talked a little bit about the places that you've been and, and uh, mm -hmm. worked in Australia. I mean, that must have been something. Yeah, it was uh, it was cool. There's no H2S, but you got to take a snake bite course. So <laughs> a lot of little creepy crawlies, but... You know, I mean, it's you're right, and it's not just not just opportunities on a drilling rig, and you know, you don't need to stand out in the freezing cold. About September, you should start packing your winter gear because if there's one thing that'll get you every time, it's the weather. You know, but uh, I'm going to gently guide anyone who who might be listening that although we do need people this summer, why don't you work for a year? Because we really need people in the winter, 
Uh, but then you can get a full bankroll and you can decide if you really do want to be a lawyer, you know, or if you really want to do be an engineer or a writer. You know, a famous man once said that writers are the engineers of the soul, but real engineers get paid better. I think. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. That's so for it, sure. it's, uh, but yeah, there's there's plenty of opportunity. I mean, you can, I, I'd probably burn up too much airtime if I listed, but I mean, there's, there are, I think someone did a study once, and it might have been the CAOEC, that there's something like 70 jobs related to every drilling rig, uh, not just on the rig, but ancillary services and in town as well. And of course, it, it, uh, uh, it's kind of the, the, I guess, geophysical exploration would be the sharp end, but drilling is certainly part of the sharp end of, of the upstream side of it anyways, and there's, there's plenty of opportunity in, in uh, in oil and gas in, in Alberta as a whole. Yeah, yeah. Excuse me, Western Canada. I need Western, to stop no, that. no. Yeah. And and w so we use 200 uh, direct and indirect jobs mm. for every active rig. And we get a lot of pushback on social in the comments, people saying, oh, how, you know, how can it be 200? And, and so, you know, our last, uh, we tweeted a couple weeks ago, I think it was 109 rigs, uh, the difference between this year and last year, and that was worked out to be about 22,000 jobs. And a lot of people are saying, 22,000 jobs, how does that, for 109 rigs, that doesn't make any sense. But especially now, when you look at all the specialty services that are on, on the rig, uh, you know, directional, uh, you have guys with different tongs coming down, you have cementing, you have, you know better than I you do. All sorts of, I mean, it's, it's like dropping a, the, use the analogy, dropping a pebble in a pond. Well, at the center, you got your rig, but you got your crew, you got your company men, you, or company men, you got a, uh, maybe a geologist, but you got ancillary services, a guy bringing out a bit, you got a water hauler, you got a mud company and then you have people supporting those uh, on the technical side so someone doing a program someone doing a, uh, uh, a mud program but then I mean that's just that's just, so you can count on the rig which say it might be about 20 but then there might be about 70 including people in the offices but then let's not forget well where are the guys staying they're in town so now they're staying in a hotel and then there's someone who cleans the room, there's someone who checks them in, there's someone who cooks some breakfast in the morning at a restaurant and then there's a busboy and a dishwasher and without those people eating in the restaurant, those people wouldn't have jobs either. So I, I would uh, enthusiastically counter anyone who says that it's it's uh, anyone who would question your numbers. Yeah. yeah, and especially when you look at the full life cycle of the well, because mm -hmm. you know you've got to oh, have somebody. Yeah, don't even get me started. Yeah. over twenty years. I yeah. mean, come on, or however long it lasts. But yeah, yeah. And then at the end, someone comes along and abandons, abandons it, and reclaims it, and yeah, yeah it's a plants it's a, the trees, puts the soil back, does all that stuff. Classic cradle to grave. Yep. Yeah, yeah. No, so. This has been a fantastic conversation. Um, I'm really hoping that our members can share this series of podcasts with their kids. Uh, I don't know if they, you know, it might be a little boring for them, but hopefully if they're sort of at that, that spot in their lives where they're looking to, you know, figure things out and they're frustrated because they can't get a job, um, you know, hopefully this information is valuable. Uh, just to circle back, we talked about it a bit earlier, but to end off here, what's the labor situation like? right now um, what can people expect for I mean nobody can predict the future but let's say uh, oil stays above 60 which it has a good shot of doing for the next couple of years we've got two pipelines coming on um, arguably just under a million barrels per day of takeaway capacity in the next couple of years uh, things I think are looking better than ever 
Um, so where are we at from your perspective and, uh, you know, I guess sort of parting advice for anybody, not just young people, but anybody maybe looking for a new career direction, it sounds like right now might be a good time. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah, yeah, I speak to a lot of peers, you know, you know being a uh, latter half of middle-aged, you know, I mean, I, I know a good cross-section of people and, uh, and uh, you know, I've put some of their kids and nephews to work. Uh, thank you, please send more. And uh, you know, people who live in in town who who haven't worked in the last year, or maybe not in the last seven, and certainly not doing what they necessarily thought they were going to be. But uh, that, that was a multiple part question. The first part of the question was, what's the labor situation like now? It's tight. Um, <clears throat> you know, I mean, we're we as a society are seeing you know, Timmy's shorthanded, or or uh, people walking off the job on in, in I think it was a Burger King or something like that. I mean, you see all all over social media. Um, it's and there's there's a few reasons for it. I mean, I think with the with the economic situation in the past year, and in and in Western Canada probably for the past you know five to seven years, it's uh, it's been sort of doom and gloom. But I mean, specifically on on rigs, I mean we had. 27, we've got 27 running today, and I think last week we were short 17. We're starting to, to chip it away, 17 hands, and, and all at the entry level. So, you know, I mean, the, the, the guys, I like to call them lifers. I mean, once you've, once you've made it to like Derek Hand or Driller, you're, you're, you love it, you're committed to it, you're, you're gonna stay in the industry even if you don't necessarily stay in a drilling rig. But again, getting those people to come in and try the entry level jobs is difficult. Having said that, uh, it's summer, so I mean, a lot of people are enjoying the wonderful weather. So they don't necessarily want to come now. There's there's the 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 factor of the wage subsidy, or excuse me, the uh, um, yeah wage subsidy that that Sir, people are collecting yeah. two thousand dollars a month to uh, stay at home. And if you, and if you're you know if you're living in your mom's basement or or as I did in university with seven guys in a house, you can survive a long time on two thousand dollars. The good news is, is that for the economy, anyways, is that it's supposed to end in September. The uh, uh, I can't imagine anyone's going to have any savings, so people are going to have to start going back to work, and uh, there will be opportunity again, like you say, if the price of oil holds up, and not just on a drilling rig, but also uh, all the other associated services in the oil field and even in society as a whole. So I think that uh, you know, I mean, with the with the U.S sort of going through their own little uh, green experiment, I'll, I'll call it diplomatically right now, that, that could be a bull run here in Canada, certainly in Western Canada for the next four years. So uh, there is opportunity. The, uh, once once the, the sector returns to profitability, it'll be the operators first, and they're starting to pay off their debt, then the service companies, then, uh, you know, people will start talking more about probably rising salaries and everyone you not everyone, I'm, I'm generalizing again but you know people always say you that or would say something to the effect that in the oil field you're, you're you tend to be overpaid well that's not the case the reason it gets cranked up is because you have to attract people back to a cyclical, cyclical industry so you know, I mean, uh, I had some good, fortunate mentors that said, you know, it, it, it's boom and bust. You know, guys that worked in the business for 40, 50, and I'm, I'm actually, I'm looking at, as we speak behind you, Gordy Rowan there, who was in the business for 60 years. He didn't retire till he was, I think, 86 or 87, finally. And, uh, you know, you, you just need to understand that don't buy the toys, don't buy all the, don't buy all the things, and 
in my case, don't keep getting married and divorced. I'm on Freedom 85 now. So, <laughs> <laughs> so take, take my advice. Yeah. Yeah. But there is opportunity. There is opportunity coming, and, I, and it is, as it always has been, I mean, it's, it's part of our culture, and not, not just in Canada, not just in Alberta, but, I mean, you know, you think about, about uh, you know, growing up watching cartoons, you know, I mean, Yosemite Sam, when a gusher comes in, of course, that's bad when it blows oil all over the place, but, I mean, we, we saw those, and that's, that's, a, that's a North American culture thing. The, uh, the last picture show, uh, that was Sybil Shepherd's first movie, that was all based around oil and gas. Uh, Armageddon, everybody knows that one. You know, there will be blood. I mean, it's, uh, it is the backdrop to our society. And uh, I think it's getting some bad press right now, but, uh, you know, this, this too shall pass. I mean, if you, if you want to get philosophical, you can say, okay, well, we're sort of coming into another societal cycle like the 1960s. And in the 1960s, I wasn't born yet, you weren't born yet, but we, we've all seen the, the, or heard the Beatles songs or saw the newsreels and the world was gonna, capitalism was gonna crash, so you know, we were destroying the planet and, and uh, everything was gonna change, but then came the 70s and everybody kinda grew up and realized that they needed a job and they started to survive and the economy got back on track and, and but there was a lot of good that came out of it. Right? I mean, uh, people stop throwing all their litter out their windows all the time. You know, you know, they stop throwing their cigarette butts in the street. Heck, they eventually stop smoking, really, for the most part. So I think we're, we're in, a, in an age now where we are making society a better place. There's continuous improvement. And, uh, but uh, if, like I'll tell my kid if he asks, or once he starts thinking about what he wants to do for a career other than playing hockey or being a cop like we all wanted to do or whatever, uh, I'm going to point him in this direction, and uh, I, I certainly hope uh, more people do, because the opportunity uh, will be there, and will be there for decades to come. Well, thank you, John. That was a great conversation. We have been joined by John Paul, sales manager of drilling at Enzyme Energy Services. Uh, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. That's it for another edition of the General Well Servicing CAOEC podcast. Thanks again for listening and downloading. And thanks to uh, John Paul for joining us in studio for a great interview. If you enjoyed this episode, we would ask that you share it with anyone in your life who may be looking for a great career, uh, your kids, your friends, whoever, because we will have a lot of exciting opportunities coming up in our industry. So as always, if you have feedback or suggestions for upcoming guests, please drop us a line at communications at caoec.ca. Thank you for listening, and until next time, keep it turning to the right.